Welcome to Propinquity Press, where we bring people together with the hope that that experience changes the world. We hope you enjoy this selection by author William Spangler Dunning. No apologies needed. Through the smoke and smell of burning oil, I told my son about his grandfather's legendary ability to take old boat motors, long since abandoned and thrown away by others, and reassemble them into wondrous masterpieces of machinery. As I extolled his great mechanical exploits in a manner similar to that of a medieval knight slaying a dragon, I found myself yelling over the backfire of a two-cycle engine that was now pushing us into the path of other sleek, shiny, non-smoking boats. My father, now long past his prime, was bent over the back of the boat, trying his best to fix the motor that he had hoped would be a gift to his grandson. His fingers no longer moved with the nimbleness they did when I was his young son, and his hearing was greatly diminished from all those years of fixing other boat motors. However, with all his remaining desire to be useful and needed, he pulled, tugged, and yanked until that propeller was spinning us through the waves. It was one of the most dangerous, embarrassing, and yet one of the most humorous days of my life up to that point. I can remember switching back and forth between gasps of fear and giant tears of laughter, like I had come down with a very odd case of hiccups. It was likely because of the ambiguity of my emotions and the uncertainty of our situation in my father's most recent boat resurrection, that when I recall that moment in my mind, I feel like reaching out and touching my father's shoulder as if I can still get his attention. These kinds of memories seem to create a perpetual tunnel between a moment in the past to every point into the foreseeable future. As a storyteller, I especially love these kinds of memories. Both my parents grew up in the Great Depression that swept across the United States in the 1930s. In family pictures of that time, all children look sad and longing. Some are simply anxious to escape the forced experience of staying still long enough to take a picture. But my parents appear like little aliens in their family albums. In almost every picture, my mother is dangling her short legs over a chair or a stool and smiling like she's just been chosen the queen of the prom. The images of my father, as he stands to the left and slightly apart from the rest of the family, seem to foreshadow his dream for an adventure that would take him beyond the world in which he was born. It was in those moments, as the shutter on the camera opened and closed, that I believed my father became the kind of person who saw the world around him for what it could be, and not just what it was in that moment of time. And better yet, he began using his hands to craft random leftover and unwanted junk piles into useful objects for his adventures. And more often than not, these objects became boats. Things never intended to be a boat became canoes or sailboats to allow him and his siblings to venture out to the middle of lakes and farm ponds. He used to say to me in passing, there are just some things that you can't experience just sitting on the shore. The bigger fish are always out in the middle. He would often add as a nod to my desire to go into ministry, 
And unless you can walk on water, we will need a boat. In time, the depression across the country would ease. And with its disappearance, the need to create things out of nothing slowly drifted out of existence. But my father continued to build boats. Not so much because he had to anymore, but because he wanted to provide the experience of making them with his son, who could not yet walk on water. The first boat I remember from my childhood was one he and my grandfather had made from a triangular-shaped hood of a 1947 Super Hudson. Well, technically, it took two similar-shaped car hoods to make that canoe-like boat. With an arc welder and a little tar sealant, they made it mostly leak-proof. It was not very pretty, but with a paddle made of an old broom handle and a rectangular piece of barn board, that little flotilla became a sacred place for my father and me to talk out in the middle of the lake, far from the listening ears of my brothers. On occasion, we even took the time to cast our lines into the water. Building boats and repairing the motors that went along with them was never about fishing for my father. We did often take his creations to the lake and catch a few fish now and then. But for my father, it seemed always to be about something more. Now that I have my own son, I believe I am beginning to understand his motivation. His gifts to me always required at least one trip out on the water to make sure that there were no leaks, and along the way, he would tell me a story or two. With the wind whistling around his balding head, my father felt the powerful purpose that comes with knowing you have something to give to your children. My father had oversized ears, and for a time this trait was one of the most compelling reasons I thought he might be from Mars, too. I don't know for sure that this is what allowed him to know about every passion, dream, or just a wish of mine. But on many occasions, my father found a way to invent and or scavenge parts and pieces to make things I only remember thinking inside my head. It is also possible that my mother would pass along secret information that allowed him to appear to know just what I needed. Whatever superpower was at play, three days after telling my mother I really wanted a boat, one showed up. It appeared in our driveway with red and white paint peeling down its sides, sitting on a dented trailer with a flat tire and a motor with a three-inch hole in the combustion chamber. If boats can have leprosy, then this one had the worst case in all history of boat leprosy epidemics. But this kind of project is how my father earned his legendary status as a boat whisperer. I don't think that is actually a term, but if it was, my father would be one of the best. Though my father was an amazing self-taught mechanic and could fix almost anything with a little muscle and a touch of grease, his real gift was his imagination that allowed him to see into the future. As he parked the boat in our driveway, I watched him gaze deeply at something my mother called a giant pile of termite food. He looked it over from every angle, disappeared into our dimly lit garage, and began gathering items from the cluttered shelves. As I let myself drift back to those magical flashes when my father's genius filled that garage, I still see those items in his hands. A piece of cardboard that had once held a box of screws, two tubes of J.B. Weld, and a metal file. My father never used a manual to fix things, because the things he fixed 
No one would have taken the time to write a manual on how to repair them. They would just have thrown them out into the local landfill. The specifics of what he did are lost to me because my father was better at modeling how to go about solving a problem more than he was about teaching the step-by-step tasks it took to accomplish the project. What I do remember is the way he stood there, analyzing the ragged hole in the top of that green Evinrude motor. At some point, I would watch him scratch the top of his head, and it was then that I knew that he had figured out how to make it work again. It was always at that moment that he would send me upstairs for something, either because he was afraid he might fail or because he thought something might explode. More than once during my childhood, explosions or toxic smoke had permeated their way through the floors of our garage that existed underneath that house on Holt Street. During my Martian heritage days, I made the assumption that my father was working on a new fuel source for the extraterrestrial vehicle that I had yet to discover in the same garage. Whatever else he did, down in the underneath parts of our house, he always managed to fix the broken things that came into our family. Most of the time, what he repaired was of the mechanical variety. But on occasion, a random neighbor or a work friend would wander into his garage, and they too would leave a little less broken. Within both of my parents, there existed a bit of a paradox when it came to visitors to the house. They were the most relaxed and least judgmental parents of all human parents I knew then, and really since. My friends almost always chose to meet at our house when we gathered together for late-night card games or controversial conversations. I don't mean to give the false impression that we never met at the houses of my friends, but on the rare occasions when we did meet in their homes, it always seemed curiously convenient that their parents were nowhere to be found. When we met at my house, my parents were not only present, but often would participate in our conversations with a supportive comment now and then. They were just those kinds of parents that often only appear in dreams or children's books. The second or flip side of their attitude towards visitors was one of a protective mentoring. They had high standards for how humans should interact with each other. I always found my parents to be extremely polite and perhaps even overly accommodating to visitors if they viewed them as people who would treat their children with respect and love. However, if they sensed any kind of arrogance, selfishness, or narcissism, not a word they ever used, but a human trait they considered to be pure evil, they simply would never let them into their house or let them anywhere near their children. They valued servanthood a willingness to get your hands dirty, and above all else, an authentic understanding that all people are created equal. They did not mean that last value as some mission statement that people would quote about the Constitution, but as an essential and deeply held belief that all human beings are equally valuable. For my parents, kindergarten teachers were on the same level as college professors, though they had never met a college professor. They believed doctors were no more valuable than car mechanics, and they saw people who lived with grease permanently embedded underneath their fingernails as being just as important to life on Earth as those who wore immaculate suits. Well, on that last one, they might have valued the grease people a little more than the Sioux people. They were not saints, after all. They were, in my humble and totally biased opinion, just some of the best humans on the planet. I came to understand the difference between what humans say they believe 
and what their actions tell you they actually believe. The lesson began while I sat painting the inside of yet another one of my father's boat restoration projects. He had found this latest one, abandoned along one of the many gravel roads in Iowa. After a few hole repairs and the coat of paint I was adding to the insides, that boat was to last me through most of my high school years. However, the lesson I learned from the back of that boat has stuck with me my whole life, despite the fact that very little of that lesson had to do with repairing a boat. I heard him long before I saw him, as the muffler in his car was either missing or heavily damaged. When he finally pulled into the driveway, I could see that he was driving a sports car, long past its prime. The rust scattered through the body of the car seemed to reflect the personality and life situation of the owner. It was the kind of car that many in my neighborhood would buy shortly after their graduation from high school or just after their first divorce. The driver's name was Ronnie. And even I, with or without Martian powers, could tell that his life was a damn mess. I learned early on to remain quiet and just listen when people would stop by unexpectedly to talk to my parents. So, I stopped painting the boat, slowed my breathing, and began listening so that every word they said was able to lodge deep enough in my mind to become part of a story. This is what I remember. Hey, Ronnie, is that a new car? my mother asked with a tone of slimly disguised sarcasm. Ronnie nodded and smiled sheepishly toward her because he understood the subtext of my mother's question. With the conspicuous absence of his wife that day, it was obvious to everyone who cared to notice that the car was his way of announcing, consciously or unconsciously, that he was about to walk away from his marriage. With that question avoided, he made his way to where my father was applying the reflective decals to the outside of the boat as the final act to make it officially and legally ready to use. The Coca-Cola uniform that Ronnie was wearing confirmed to me that he and my father likely worked together. The grease-stained smudges all over the midsection of his body further told me that he was one of the mechanics and therefore worked alongside my father. His first words to my father were about a mechanical issue he had resolved with the injection compressor or something like that. My father responded with similar words that I did not fully understand, and for five minutes, they went back and forth in a passionate flurry about things only mechanical-minded people comprehend. It was also clear to me in the exchange that Ronnie must have been my father's apprentice. Several times in the conversation, he would nod his head in amazement and agreement with the way my father seemed to be able to visualize the equipment they both were employed to keep running. My father was certainly not a trained counselor, but he always knew just when to move into the more confidential area of the garage and away from my curious ears. The mechanical conversation had been the excuse to talk to my father, but the deeper conversation about the mess of his life was the real reason for the visit. It was at that moment that my father motioned to Ronnie to move deeper into his garage. He gestured with his hand and said, Ronnie, come help me fix the motor I'm working on in the back. However, I knew even at my young age, that this was guy code for let's do something physical to allow for the space for deeper emotional topics to be shared. I continued to paint the insides of my new boat for what seemed like hours until eventually Ronnie and my father returned from the darkest parts of that garage. They had returned to talking about bottling machinery at the coke plant, but Ronnie's facial expressions indicated that something about himself had been fixed, if only for the moment. His eyebrows were less scrunched together, and the ends of his mouth curled slightly upwards into a smile, 
as he shook my father's hand, with a hint of a bow towards my mother, who had returned to offer everyone some coffee. He thanked both of my parents and re-entered his car and drove away. Ronnie was not the only person to stop by the house while my father fixed those boats, but he is the only one I remember with such vividness, because he was the only one who came back a few days later to apologize. It was at that moment, with him standing on the other side of our screen door, that I learned the real lesson my parents hoped I would retain. All parents do their best in both words and actions to teach their children how to be the best kind of human being possible. Because each human being has a slightly different understanding of what the, quote, best means, each child, human or Martian, must pay close attention to the subtle clues in order to develop those same traits in the person they are becoming. When Ronnie returned to our house, I was sitting at the kitchen table doing some homework and heard his complete apology. It sounds strange to even call it an apology because it seemed then, and even more so now, like deep and heartfelt poetry that expressed the most inner vibrations of how I remember the best of what my parents tried to teach me. The words he spoke through the screen door of our house on Holt Street were both rehearsed out of his need to say just the right thing and intensely authentic to the deepest parts of his soul. They were the simplest of words, never intended to be captured in a story or remembered by anyone. Yet that apology and my parents' response to it created a moment that not only helped me be okay, but became the ongoing mantra for my life. My images of Ronnie, standing in the dark outside our house that night, returned to me now and then. Those images resurf with such detail that I can almost feel the pencil in my hand as I write the answers for my third grade homework again. The memory is so integrated into the person I am that sometimes I can even detect the slight taste of my favorite childhood snack, a butter and sugar sandwich. Memories like this that flood and slosh throughout all parts of our brains and cause us to experience the past through multiple sensory inputs often create after-images that are indistinguishable from our present reality. Some experts call these events in our lives foundational memory moments, and they are the definition of what makes it possible for us to be okay in this world. As the light from inside our house streamed through the mesh pattern of the screen door, his face became visible to me. As he stood there talking to my parents, nervously shifting back and forth, the light eventually found him, and gently fell across his entire body like a spotlight on a great stage. Then he spoke these words. I'm, I'm sorry I came to visit you the other day in my grease-soaked work uniform. I, I should have gone home and changed before coming to see you. I need to apologize to you and your entire family because you deserve more respect from me than that. I promise I won't... My father interrupted him and said, Ronnie, here in this house... Grease on your uniform and dirt under your fingernails is a badge of honor, not something that needs an apology. My mother put her arm around my father and nodded in agreement. In my memory, which is not always completely factual, my parents began shedding tears of pride with Ronnie, confirming that moment as yet another story I would need to remember. It's just as likely that they simply said goodbye in the standard stoic fashion modeled by most Midwesterners of that era. However, as a storyteller, I tell the truth when the facts don't add up to the whole story. After that night of apology, I don't remember ever seeing Ronnie again at our house or out in the larger community. 
He lived mostly in my father's work world, and I like to imagine that they had many more adventures together at the Coca-Cola plant, but that was the once and only time Ronnie became a character in one of my memories. Nevertheless, that is the beauty of the human experience. Sometimes, it is in the briefest encounters with people that we barely know that we learn those simple and small things that become so foundational to the path of our lives. These are the things that repeat over and over, like the refrains of a song in our life story, until one day we hear them echoing in our own words to other human beings seeking to be okay in their lives. Meanwhile, back on the lake, as the smoke cleared and the boat motor sputtered to a stop, never to rise again, my father turned to my son, his grandson, and began to speak an apology. As he spoke, I found myself noticing the grease under his fingernails and the now blackened oil splotch across his midsection. He was no longer the father of my youth, but had become the grandfather of my son's childhood. With a little bit of sadness, I realized that his boat whispering days were long gone. It was then, sitting in the middle of my father's last boat, that I finally understood that it was never about boats at all. It was always about the value of people and how we see each other. As I continued to try to apologize to my son, I reached out, touched his shoulder, and said through my tears of laughter, Dad, there is no need for an apology, for this has been one of the most wonderful days of my life. And with that, as my son overheard me valuing an old boat whisperer, I passed on the lesson to the next generation.